Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. I am your host, Catherine. SDR8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.co.uk. You can buy the book that goes along with this season at straighttalkingenglish.co.uk forward slash books or on Amazon, search up the full context or the links in my Twitter bio. I'm making it easy for you guys. Today we are talking about the science behind Frankenstein. Now, this is going to be a two-parter. Not because there's a lot of it, but I mean, like, there is a lot of it. But because some of the scientists who influenced Frankenstein were actually alchemists and mystic people. So, today is going to be devoted to real-life peoples. And next week, we're going to talk about some alchemists. This is awesome. If you like what I do, straighttalkingenglish.co.uk forward slash support the project. Every donation matters. If you like what I'm doing, buy me a coffee. Give me a little couple of quid. I would greatly appreciate it. Right, let's go back in time to talk about our scientists. Back, 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 back. One of the questions that we take for granted is that you can tell if something is alive. Like, you can poke it and you can see if it's alive. But it wasn't that obvious, to be honest. And there's a lot of theories now about, like, what, you know, what is life? What is the soul? We're talking at the very start of the 19th century. Like, what is what is life? What is life's tail end of the Enlightenment? Like, we need to know this. The debate which is important to know, first of all, is the vitality debates of 1814 to 1819. Vitalists tended to think that every living thing had some, like, vital force in it that brings life into them. Like, your soul is infused into the body, like, deliciousness from a tea bag into a cup of tea... Uh, And God did that, and that was via electricity, and there's this sort of, like, soul energy that keeps you going, and that's what makes you different from something that's uh, not alive, right? Like, God puts the electric soul teabag into you, and then you're good. That is your vitalists. The big name for our vitalists is Abernathy. John Abernathy very much summarises that point of view. Since debate, we've got a materialist debating him by the name of William Lawrence. He was actually Percy Shelley's bestie because when worlds collide, and he's also the first person to use the word biology. In this debate, Questions were asked about how to define life and how living bodies were different to dead bodies. Lawrence thought that the working operation of the human body was kind of like a machine. It's just the sum of its parts. This is seen as being a little bit out there, a little bit too radical, because it sort of suggests there isn't a soul. Like, if you just sort of stick the bits together, like Lego, you're going to get a person kind of by denying this quote-unquote vital principle he denies the soul so he was accused of being an atheist which was a bad thing at the time of course but who else was accused of being an atheist mr percy Bysshe shelley why because he was an atheist he of course published his pamphlet the necessity of atheism which resulted in him getting kicked out of uni they were good friends as i've mentioned 
So it's not really surprising that Percy Bysshe Shelley's wife would write something very akin to what his best friend thought. Abernathy's idea, though, about there being a vital force is kind of more romantic, though. Romantic with a big R. It links to this, like, sense of community, like we've all got an energy coming from somewhere. And we might even want to call this energy nature. Wordsworth style. So, kind of both sides of it are coming in. Mary Shelley wanted to talk about someone else, though. In her introduction to Frankenstein, she said that the event on which this fiction is founded has been supposed by Dr. Darwin and some of the physiological writers of Germany as not of impossible occurrence. She does not mean Charles Darwin. She's talking about his grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, who was actually properly cool. I got into researching him actually before I was doing this project because one of my neighbours is the descendant of Erasmus and Charles Darwin. <laughs> like, it's sort of thing that comes up when I have dinner with people, like, got any famous ancestors? Yeah, I do. So I kind of got into looking at him anyway because he was a bit of a cool guy. He worked as a doctor for most of his life, but he was one of these like proper genius people who was just sort of good at everything he did he decided to study plants but publish his findings in the form of poetry oh awkward but some of the things that he found out sort of laid the foundations for what his grandson would talk about so he carefully examined all the plants in his garden and he got this theory that many of his plants came from a single ancestor but changed a little bit along the way. He also got really interested in reproduction. I assume in a scientific way and not in a weird way like but honestly you can't tell it's the the blooming 18th and 19th century everyone's into something weird but he was one of the first people to note that some species have developed physical features only for the purpose of attracting mates think you tropical birds that are all nice and brightly coloured and feathery and that's the only reason that like they would have that he was also thinking about like um putting animals in order like hierarchies so for instance like a chimp is more developed than like an amoeba he's like these animals are basic these animals are less basic and he noted that basically reproducing via sex was a characteristic of the more highly evolved species but if you wanted to get the best specimen of a plant or an animal you had to go for a species that had decidedly male and female bits to it so for example orchids have a part that gives out the pollen and a part that receives the pollen and we can broadly say that those are male and female the best plants and animals had distinct gendered parts to them and is this a little bit of foreshadowing because the monster the creature does not have two gender distinct parents it has one crazy man it was not created through any kind of like reproduction 
If we look at Darwin's writings, we can see that Mary Shelley, like, pitted Victor Frankenstein against these, like, evolving processes in nature. So it's nature versus Frankenstein. Rather than letting an organic life form evolve over thousands of years according to natural processes, Victor Frankenstein does it quickly with chemicals and electricity. He substitutes solitary propagation like like a strawberry plant that clones itself for sexual reproduction he's going against dr darwin erasmus darwin's quite like gentle view of science he's like things go slowly things go gradually and victor's like no we're doing it now we're doing it my way of course it's gonna go wrong of course it is. It's never going to happen. Like, that is our foreshadowing the second she mentions Dr. Darwin. The other important person, though, that we want to talk about is Luigi Galvini, from whose name we have Galvinism. He made the link between the human body and electricity. It was something that captured the imagination so so strongly. At the University of Bologna, Luigi Galvini was a surgeon and he wanted to look at the effects of electricity on animals. So in 1781, he was dissecting a frog near a static electricity machine. The assistant touched a scalpel to a nerve in the leg and the leg jumped. Galvini repeated this experiment and always observed the same violent spasms. Also, if you hang up the frog leg on a brass hook and touch to an iron trellis, it makes the leg muscles contract. It's conducting things. Galvini was a little bit, he was on a bit of a weird track with this. He called it animal electricity and believed it resided inside the frog. He published his findings 10 years later in 1791 and apparently got the nickname Frog Dancing Master. Someone he influenced was Mr. Alessandro Volta. He was the first person to isolate methane and was the first person to talk about electrical capacity, potential and charge. He popularised Galvini's work. But he reached very different conclusions. He believed the electricity came from the two metals, not the frog the frog was just conducting it he replaced the leg with paper soaked in salt water and detected a current this became another one of these debates do we have animal electricity which just exists within living bodies or different materials 1799 volta invents something called the voltaic pile which is the world's first battery you had different metals with this um salt water soaked paper in between them and it was the very it was like the ancestor the great 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 granddaddy of the batteries we know today it takes decades decades and decades to actually get anywhere with this. 1803 is an important year. The murderer George Forster was pulled from the gallows of Newgate Prison where he was about to be hanged. Well, he was hanged, but like, like as soon as he was, and taken to the Royal College of Surgeons. Giovanni Aldini, who was nephew of Luigi Galvini, tried to bring him back to life right? He put conducting rods and batteries on his face 
and also uh, in his rectum because science and that caused the muscles in the body to twitch it made the fists clench it made the legs kick so people are starting to think this might be a thing i mean we know about defibrillators now and um, we've all seen them in medical shows where you put the electrical pads on someone's chest but this is the first time people are thinking about that seriously. A lot of Londoners got really, really into this because Aldini, of course, was experimenting in London, including these people that had a, a charity to support victims of drowning and their families. Patron of the Drowning People charity, Mary Wollstonecraft, mother of Mary Shelley, who herself tried to complete suicide by drowning at one point. London becomes this like centre of electrical interest and experimentation and instrument making. It's a way of making our enlightenment progress visible to people. You could go out and you could see displays of sparks, displays of electric fire, all kinds of like cool stuff. Galvanism became part of this culture of display. So if you were out in London, you could see like an electrical experiment. A lot of these were happening literally down the road <laughs> from Mary Shelley. A lot of them were happening so, so, so close. And it's really easy to imagine her working in the family's bookshop, going for a walk and seeing like some kind of cool sparks jumping thing but it also became a political thing right science reveals the true character of nature's laws yeah and it would reveal the extent to which england's laws and government didn't link to nature so you get your people like godwin who were like the social order is meant to mirror the order of nature with checks and balances. So if we understand more about nature, we can understand more about society and we can work out why our current system is bad. Godwin especially was fascinated by this idea that through galvanism we can prove that the soul is material and there is no god. Alright, alright, yeah I guess so, I mean someone can technically be dead for a short amount of time then be brought back but no 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 godwin was on this and again not great leap mary shelley comes home her dad's like let me tell you why there is no god and it's because it's electricity yes eat your supper now mary and these are these ideas that are like bubbling around in her head let's talk about humphrey davy the man for whom my spell checker blimmin hates me because he's h-u-m-p h-r-y no e davy no e he was another mate of william godwin's who was always coming around their house when mary was young he is really cool actually he discovered five elements barium calcium boron strontium and magnesium he would give a series of lectures like just lectures for fun that you could go to and he would talk about his research he'd talk about electrochemistry the study of electricity's effects on chemical reactions he began to experiment with his voltaic piles as soon as he heard about them he began he literally would get like 600 people to come in and see things he would be able to use batteries to turn on lights to absolutely astound people this guy was a big 
big deal was old Humphrey Davy. So not only was it someone that Shelley knew personally, and I deliberately like skipped this out in the last episode because it's more important now. One of the things that Mary Shelley was doing for fun when she was writing Frankenstein, so it was partly like reading her novels, writing Frankenstein, um, dealing with her own changing body as she's being pregnant, dealing with all these family dramas. One of the things she would do to entertain herself would be to go to Humphrey Davies's lectures and read his little like pamphlets you could buy at them. He is so important for what's going on in her head. He's also incredibly important because apparently he's horrible as a person. Like he invented laughing gas by the way. I, I just want to chuck that in as well. Apparently he's incredibly arrogant and egotistical. He describes himself as a narcissist and there are some researchers who've gone back, looked at his notes and was like, yeah, if this was a real person, he would 100% have like narcissistic personality disorder. He was like, I am the ego. I am the big I am. He wanted to climb the social ladder and become this great scientist. To what point he would throw his friends under the bus. He constantly wanted people to compliment him and if you had a conversation that was not about complimenting him he would ignore you (laughs) so you have this absolutely brilliant brilliant person who's pioneering so much science so much chemistry and he's just awful (laughs) which i again dinner at the godwins must have been truly fantastic with like if you don't tell me i'm brilliant i'm leaving i'm like oh my days so yeah could he be a model for victor frankenstein incredibly single-minded frankenstein doesn't really have any friends he shuts himself up in his room and yeah that's like he just sits there working he said like he sits there working all day he's is he Humphrey Davy? Oh, he might be, mightn't he? When we get onto the Victor episode, we'll talk about some other models for who he might be. But if you're going to remember the big names, you want to talk about the vitalism debate between Abernathy and Lawrence. You want to talk about Galvini and Volta and Aldini. And of course, Humphrey Davy and Mr. Erasmus Darwin. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back next week to talk about some really cool alchemists and people from the past who may or may not be real. There's also a saint in there somewhere because why not? Sorry about my Skype sound. I'm supposed to be at work right now. I'll speak to you next week. I am Catherine, STR8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.co.uk forward slash books if you want to buy my books forward slash support the project if you like to make a donation and I will speak to you very, very soon. (laughs) 